You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kastorlarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you learning and growth as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Moritz, where we really got into how you can gain access to some quite liquid commodity markets in China, but also the pros and the cons in doing so. And we discussed the common cause of hedge fund blowups. So if you missed that episode, I invite you to go back and check it out. Jerry, as always, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Oh, things are great here in uh, Florida. Very nice weather. Just got back from the Masters golf tournament last mm-hmm. weekend, and that was a lot of fun. And the markets have continued to be uh, very favorable for trends. So that always just boosts my mood for some reason. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Anyways, just a few things that I found interesting from this week. So in terms of market wrap, I did think that it was, there was a few things that were interesting. On Wednesday, of course, Coinbase was the talk of Wall Street as the largest crypto platform in the US, founded only nine years ago, geared up for its public debut on a traditional exchange, so to speak, arriving via direct listing rather than the more traditional initial public offering. And as most things related to crypto, Coinbase stock did not disappoint, trading with huge level of volatility in its first three days in the public eye between a price of 310 and 429. And I'm sure that this event gave birth to a few more crypto billionaires and a lot more multi-millionaires as valuations just keeps going higher for many of these assets. And it's fascinating to see how certain high-profile investment slash industry celebrities continues to announce extremely high price targets on some of these assets like Bitcoin or Tesla, just to name a couple. It seems like most investors would rather have a number to hold on to than no number, even if the number is wrong. There is a deep dependence in our world today and in our economies on numbers and quantification. It seems somehow less uncertain if you have a number that you can put on it. It gives us this false sense of security. We need numbers, but I think we make a big mistake when we start to see the numbers as something solid and real when really they're just guesses about the future. Perhaps this is one of the key reasons why a strategy like trend following that admits to have no way of predicting where markets are heading, no numbers to share, is not that popular. But apparently you don't have to be involved in crypto or electric vehicles in order to get a high number on your valuations these days. According to hedge fund manager David Ihorn. Hometown International, ticker HWIN, a little-known single deli in rural New Jersey, 
with $21,772 in 2019 sales and $13,976 in 2020 sales, saw its market cap reach $113 million on February 8th of this year. Mr. Einhorn notes that the largest shareholder is also its CEO, CFO, treasurer, and a director who also happens to be the wrestling coach at the local high school next to the Delhi. Mr. Einhorn makes the point that a situation like this is a sign that markets are in the process of breaking down completely, with regulators being neither present nor curious. I thought that was an interesting comment. But anyways, much more interesting is to hear what has stood out to you, Jerry, since we last spoke, either in terms of markets, in terms of performance, or anything else that you thought that piqued your curiosity? Well, I think Bitcoin is my most volatile position. It's dominating performance sometimes, so it's good to see that hold it in there. I refuse to check it now this morning, Saturday morning, but uh, oh gosh, I guess it could change. But I really, we do these back tests and we're committed to Chesapeake for these long-term trend following, a longer-term look back. And so we need to see these things, some of these counter-trend moves reemerge. And that's what has happened in the currencies. So that's nice. It was a sell-off in some of the currencies and I even got short yen and Swiss franc and then all of a sudden the dollar got weak again. So it's good to see that the strategy is not getting out too soon and that it's worthwhile in real time to have a longer term perspective because if I'd have gotten out, I'd just have to get back in. And that's a huge cost to pay whenever you get out uh, too quickly as I reset the position, reset the ATR, maybe have a smaller position now. So it's good to see that the LME kind of reemerged a little bit recently the, the dollar trade and the grains are hanging in there they've been very volatile and that's just dominating my daily performance and mood when i go through the charts and look to see if it's going to be a good day or a bad day we've had some volatility recently but the major trends seem to still be hanging in there yeah no i completely agree on our side in terms of our trend following strategy this week's it was uh, pretty strong overall but it was also very broad based in fact 40 out of the 55 markets we trade inside our program was profitable this week most notably were some of the commodities like sugar soybean oil as well as many of the energies in fact they picked up equities and currencies uh, currencies did not disappoint either and the main exceptions this week really was lean hogs and live cattle. I think they sold off during the week. So they lost a little bit of ground and fixed income was pretty much flat. Now, my trend barometer is a little bit interesting at the moment because it's actually pretty weak. It's a reading of 25, which I would definitely say is weak. So from that perspective, some markets have definitely gone down to a more neutral state but it has not really reversed the trend. So like you said, some of these markets have taken the bre a breather, but it's not stopping us out of, of our trades. And I think in translating that to the trend barometer, it just goes back to a neutral state rather than a medium to strong trending state. Now, in terms of uh, volatility, some of the option open interest and traded volume on some of these favorite retail stock is still much lower than earlier this year, and we've highlighted for the last couple of weeks, which is surprising given the strong rally we've seen in the last two weeks in many of these 
names. We also saw very little put-buying activity in the S&P index this week, which could indicate a lower hedging interest, generally speaking. And historically lower put activity and strong positive sentiment together with high PMI numbers tended to be followed by lower future returns in the index. In terms of our volatility program, it had a pretty quiet week, but a profitable week. And it was mainly profiting from some of the VIX term structure roll downs that we saw. My own trend following model portfolio, where I can be a little bit more granular, it was it's up 3.63% for the month so far. It's up 12.98% year to date. Performance this month comes from all three groups, but mainly from group two models, which are these quote-unquote discretionary type looking models, I should say, but also classical trend is doing fine. And also the shorter term of the faster reacting trend models are also doing okay. Sector performance this month, equities by far the best ones, but also, as you said, Jerry, base metals picking up on the LME. So that's doing fine. Worst sectors this month, currencies and bonds. And if we drill down to some of the single markets, DAX, SMI, and the SPY, top three. And at the bottom, we find the euro, the 10-year notes, and the yen. And in terms of the trading this week, it added a little bit to its long position in NASDAQ. It got back long in copper, went out of a short euro position, and it reduced its lean hawk position. So, But very few trades, all in all, about five. And the risk to stop number, which I know, Jerry, you don't look at (laughs) or you don't dare look at, but it would lose 11.86% on Monday if everything got stopped out, which is slightly up from last week. I think last week was 11.46%. Anyways, that gives us an idea of how bad it can get. That will never happen. Yeah, no, exactly. That, (laughs) as you're right, rightly say, probably will never happen. But anyways, now. Before we move into some of the questions that came in from Danny and Matthew, I want to go back to a question from last week from Mark, which I think we all agreed that this was pretty deep. It was a pretty deep question, and I wanted to hear your thoughts. But before we do that, let me just repeat the question so that everyone is on board. So this came in from Mark. If the philosophy of trend following assumes that we do not make predictions because the future is uncertain, why does the entire industry use historical volatility for sizing and for stops with the ATR stops? If we assume we don't know the future, then we should con- be consistent and assume we don't know the future correlations and future volatility. How can someone say that they don't know the future trend direction, but does know the future volatility and correlation, and therefore should have equal weight, all markets, all time, all the time, and never use volatility-based exits like ATR? At first, Jerry will argue that Dennis used vol, and every CTA uses it. But maybe this is not being true to the philosophy of trend following. Maybe Dennis was wrong. Maybe the assumption of using volatility in any way was a mistake from day one and the entire CTA world hasn't questioned this assumption deep enough and just layered on without understanding the true philosophy. Think of how much extra contracts that you would put on during a low vol market versus a high vol market. But that assumes low vol is permanent. If the market explodes with volatility, shouldn't that be assumed as a possibility? The philosophy of trend following is that nothing is permanent and things change drastically and things that have never happened before may happen in the future. Now, Mark then provided me 
with a further comment, which I'll read here, just to give you more to think about, Jerry, for your response. (laughs) It is a hard topic to think about since every since CTA has been trained to use volatility from day one. So many mental bricks have been built on this assumption. Original trend-following gods have all used volatility in some form, and it hasn't been questioned much. The more I ponder on it at a deeper level, the more I think volatility and correlation should be treated the same as trend direction. They are exactly unknown, and we should build a system assuming they are unknown. I think leveraging uh, leveraging up low volatility markets and negatively correlated markets assumes you can predict future volatility and correlations and even eventually be a disaster when the abnormal happens. It's true that volatility and correlation are usually consistent, which will be an argument for using it. But same can be said for price and anything in financial markets. The philosophy of trend following is to take advantage of those people that are betting on consistency because it is the and not let's try that again because it is the anomalies in the system that lead to big gains and those anomalies happen more and more and happens more than expected i think that should not only be applied to price but also volatility correlations but that would assume that most of the trend following gods were wrong and i'm right and i doubt that's the case so help me understand why my logic is flawed that was this is one of my favorite questions and a lot of comments and I agree with like everything he says here except his conclusion obviously everybody the opposite Dennis was not wrong and the whole CTA industry has it been wrong or just went with it without critically looking at it there's just too many people who disagree and love to disagree and prove somebody wrong so but everything else i agree with what he's saying here and the philosophy of trend following i think on the correlation front i agree with what he's saying i used to not agree i agreed i didn't agree now i'm back to agreeing pretty much that you should make the decision what's in the portfolio and then have a fixed portfolio and dunn has a 50 60 markets i have 100 markets but i think not changing is really the key here but it's perfectly fine if you say from a risk point of view i'm going to trade uh, not all the commodity not all the commodities not all the currencies because they are correlated and then just go with it once you've made that decision so i don't trade brent crude or gas oil and but i do trade crude heating oil and unleaded so that's my decision and i'm just going to do it for the rest of my life and then that's okay because i'm being consistent and following those rules But I'm the one who said, even though I consider heating oil and crude and unleaded fairly correlated, 90% correlated most of the time, they're three out of 100. So I'm sort of protected there if I'm wrong by trading them all the same size as and trading them the same as all the other markets protected there. But I am the one who said there's been a couple of times, three times maybe in my career, where heating oil had crazy moves. I made 30% in December 1990 in heating oil alone. And I made 30% for the year. And heating oil can have a different uh, profile than crude, obviously. And silver doubled in 1987 and gold kind of sat there. And then they go back to being 90% correlated. So you can ignore that and be uh, more pure as he's suggesting, or you can take the route that 
I've taken, which is, okay, I trade silver, gold, and platinum the same, but it's three out of 100, so I'm protected there. But I do agree that it's a different market. It has a different name, as Moritz has said. It's, it could have a different move. But the way we try to protect ourselves in this regard is saying just what's in the portfolio. I mean, I'm happy if all the currencies crash on me on Monday. It wasn't such a huge position, but one can get into those situations where it looks like there's some diversification but uh, then it everything gets correlated. So I need to break this down a little bit further because I'm I'm looking at the question again. And so so he starts out or Mark starts out by saying why does the entire industry see historic volatility or use historic volatility for sizing and for stops? But my question is what else would you use? You can't use future volatility. You have no idea what it's going to be. So so my question is maybe I'm completely misunderstanding this but why what else could you use? There's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with using historic volatility. We're not saying it's going to be the future volatility. We're just using it for, we need something because we can't just willy-nilly size our positions because we're systematic, we're not discretionary, right? So we need something to hold on to. With correlations, I don't think, I mean, you and I in your system and in my trend-following model portfolio, we don't really use correlations to size positions because as you say, we make the decision about which markets to trade or have in the portfolio. And that's it. We don't change them based on what happens going forward. And we've already decided on the level of risk we're going to take. So the correlation chains between um, wheat and soybeans have no impact on how we size positions. Now, I know that other managers, and including the firm I work for, we do, to some extent, look at correlation changes, et cetera, et cetera. It's a much, it's an adaptable system. It's a dynamic system. But I think it's, I take a little bit, not in a negative way, I think it's a great question, but I'm not sure I agree that a lot of trend followers or all trend followers use correlation as something that we try to predict. I don't think we do. Well, not necessarily predict, but react to it. And I think... Yeah, the ATR part of the question is the really one I wanted to get into. I thought more about that. And the misconception there from classic Richard Dennis, let's say, trend following, the part that he's missing is using the ATR and entry, the reason for using it is not the one he comes up with. The reason for using it strictly, obviously, because all his other points are, are correct, is to lose the same amount of money on each trade give each trade the same room, we're going to risk five ATRs for every trade, long and short, currencies and commodities, stocks and bonds. We're going to risk five ATRs. We're going to normalize those losses. We're giving them the same amount of room, and we're losing the same dollar amount of our AUM. So there is his answer that the usefulness of the ATR, we agree, there is no way. The next tomorrow, after I put this trade on, the ATR has changed, and then it changes again. And maybe this is some of the reason that the more volatility-targeting CTAs, maybe this is part of their logic. As this volatility, we, we don't do it that way, Jerry. We want to be concerned with our volatility every day, so we're going to buy a few more, sell a few more to get, to get the, every position in line with today's ATR. So I don't do that. I say it just has this 
minor function or this pretty minor function of my whole portfolio of just normalizing the losses. And so then after it's a, if it's a winning trade and the ATR doubles, triples, quadruples, you do nothing? Yes. I mean, come on. I've said this a million times. So we just let it go. And so if it turns into a winner, we love this idea that we had this low vol position on initially at the breakout. And we have this huge position because the vol was low. And watch that guy go. What was the volatility of Bitcoin at the breakout? Oh my gosh. That's why this position is so profitable. So what part of it is the trend? What part of the Bitcoin profit is the entry ATR? It's all mixed together. It scares you to death. This is about trend following, hanging in there with those large trends and not worrying about a profitable trade. It's a profitable trade. It's a huge position now based upon the current ATR versus the original ATR at entry. So we embrace this and say, thank you for these profits. Yeah, and just staying with this a little moment, couldn't we argue here that actually the way we then do it is we predict nothing because we, as you say, we the only thing we want to achieve is that we take the same risk in all markets. So there's no prediction in that. And likewise, sometimes we have big contract numbers on because volatility happened to be low at the time. Sometimes we have small positions. And that also is a kind of diversification. There's certainly no prediction in what's going to happen with volatility going forward when you do it that way. So I think Mark made the point or the comment, and I know he is asking us just to tell him why he's wrong in, in a nice way. But all I just wanted to say is that I think we make as little prediction about volatility and correlation as we do about direction of markets, actually. And I think that's the beauty of what we do when you are pure trend follower. You can argue the, the edges of this, and you can even, as you said, well, if what volatility, quote-unquote volatility guys or, or, or people who, who want to do volatility adjustment, if, they're, if all they're saying is, I just want to get back to everything being the same, well, you could ask, argue that's okay. You don't have to do it. I don't think you have to do it for, uh, like you. But that's just a philosophical difference, right? But all in all, I don't really think there's any prediction in what we do, even on volatility and correlation. And this is a way to create a rule so we can handle each trade the same way. So I don't know how to be more clear, but I don't know if, if, I'm, if I am clear on this. And that is, like we have the British pound in our portfolio for the rest of our life. And so we're going to do that trade every single time it hits our breakout entry or breakout exit or stop loss. And we're going to size it the same way with the same formula based upon ATR. And so there is this power in that, that we're not skipping trades. We're not skipping them because it's been a loser recently. We're not taking them in and out of the portfolio, which is the same thing. We don't have a rule that, well, maybe we won't do the British pound this time. No, we take every single trade. I was asked recently on Twitter, what is your money management? How does it interfere with your trades? And does it prevent you from taking trades when you have too much heat? I don't even know what heat is, but that's another kind of uh, goofy trend following term I hear from people that I base my trade level on the heat or something like that. And I base my unit sizes and my trading on the ability to do all the trades. So I trade small enough to where I can do every single trade. I must do all of these British pound trades forever. 
it's okay to kick it out of my portfolio. It just don't br- ever bring it back in. And but you're supposed to do these trades, be disciplined, have these rules, and all of our rules, entry, exit, stop loss, and sizing, are, are allows us to treat uh, all of these trades the same because that's what the back test did. That's why I'm against an overlay, a heavy-handed overlay of something called money management and fall targeting because the result of a good back test is thousands of trades, entry, exit, stop loss, that we can say, okay, this is what's going to happen every single time I follow this strategy. And I'm doing the same thing with every trade. And I'm basing these trades and my I'm basing these entries and exits on the whole group of trades plus the shorts. So my sample size is very high. It's as high as it could possibly be. So I think this is just uh, the core of classic trend following. Yeah, and on top of this, I think it, this is why people sometimes will question and may maybe not understand why we would keep markets in the portfolio that may not have been profitable for 10 years, right? Why don't you just take it out? Well, because we don't know what the future holds, so and we don't want to predict anything about it. Now, it also opens another question, which we get from time to time for sure. And this is when people ask, well, why can't you just select the markets based on trend strength? And I know they ask it because it's probably an account size issue. They may not be able to take all the trades, right? So understand why people might ask it, but also think people uh, will always get the same answer from us is that's not something we really embrace because then who's to say that a trend that is strong today will be strong in a month from now? We don't know. Well, yeah. Well, we've seen this. We see it right now where gold was the strongest, then silver, then platinum. Now that turned out to be not so good because now gold is a short. Mm, Still long silver, it's in the middle of consolidation. Platinum is the strongest now. And I would just say, not to be too cute, but I would just say essentially we do put on positions based upon trend strength. The At the time of the gold breakout, that was my only precious metals position. Sure. It was stronger. And then, then here comes silver, then here comes platinum. And now what we don't do is base our position sizing or exiting on those other two markets. I'm going to reduce my goal now that silver seems stronger. And it's purely from just a sample size. Introducing other rules now reduces our sample size. One entry for goal, one exit for goal. I'm counting all my goal trades, but now I've got an entry for goal and maybe a reduction in goal based on silver and platinum. See, this is where we're headed to nowhere with uh, now where our sample size is getting very small. I don't think that basing entries, exits, and position size on uh, for market A should be imp- impacted by market B, C, D, E, and F, and on. So that is problematic. The back test, if you did that, would look so good. Oh my gosh. That's why I don't pay attention to back test. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to move on to another fun, hopefully controversial topic, which is the fact that our good friend, Rob, was participating in a live uh, event yesterday with some great guys over at Resolve. And he made some comments that I think you might have a little bit uh, of of comment too. He did not put on 
the Jerry accent. That much I did hear in the uh, conversation. You may put on your Rob accent. You, you feel free to do so, Jerry. So, but let's let's. Uh, what was your takeaway from? And this is, of course, uh, what I'm doing now. I'm setting the stage for the next time we're gonna bring Rob and you on a show together. We'll do that, I'm sure, sometime in Q2 because they're quite fun um, and entertaining. But what kind of response do you have uh, for Rob this morning? Uh, well, I was uh, pretty excited to see, to see that Rob was going to be on uh, live, and they did it. It was so much fun, and he's uh, really smart and very interesting, and he's funny. And I think this is just going to start evolving into, like, who's funnier, Jerry or Rob? This is, like, I think what it's mostly about now, because he is uh, really funny, like a Cliff Asnes type funny. So it's, like, my top two uh, funny hedge fund people, and uh, but very, you know, smart and interesting. So, so I think, yeah, he... I think he was using an axe, trying to uh, imitate people that he was talking about yesterday. And then my name came up and he thankfully said, well, I'm not going to try to do Jerry's accent because <laughs> that would have been pretty embarrassing probably for me. But so I do have to work on my Rob accent just to frighten him or warn him that I could break it out if he breaks out his Jerry accent. But I think the only thing he brought up yesterday that was interesting was uh, maybe getting into the weeds about whether trend-following CTAs predict which is not that interesting of a topic to me. But as you've already said, in some ways, we think we don't predict. Obviously, when we choose our parameters and our back test, we like the most. We are predicting to some degree that that's going to be our best shot going forward. And I think he may have been talking about it's easier to predict volatility than something else. I forgot what that something else was. But I think we don't Part of the thing we, you've already talked about uh, many different aspects of not changing the systems and trading all the markets and trading all the markets the same is maybe a little bit of evidence that we don't predict. I don't even know why that's important, um, but if we were bad at predicting, that wasn't one of my points that 40% winning trades and really not caring about fundamentals and getting in these trades and then getting out with a small loss and then getting back out getting back into the trade if we got out too quickly and giving back so much profit. I mean, gosh, I really wish I could figure out a way not to give back profit because the long-term systems, they just have so much, they're so good at staying in Bitcoin and soybeans and the long-term trends, but they are not very good at knowing when to get out because we don't really think about knowing. And then we just use the worst ideas for, uh, predicting, which is, as I said earlier, I take all of the trades and all of the markets, combine them together with the shorts that are not nearly as profitable as the longs. And so then I say, okay, given all of the markets over 30 years, I don't even overweight the recent performance. I'm just going to take the parameters that give the, the, better, the best average trade and best trade stats looking at all the trades irrespective of sector or long versus short. So when I'm getting out of my Bitcoin or soybeans in the future, it will be based, the parameters will not even be the parameters that work best on those trades historically. So we're just doing our best, Rob, to not predict as much as possible. But I guess in some ways we are. What do you think, Niels? Well, I think that this brings up a very interesting topic because we know that right now, 
a lot of the narrative in our world is really about crypto. In fact, this morning I was out walking in 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 the forest where I live, and I was listening to Raul Pal from uh, Real Vision in his latest day, daily brief, briefing, and he talked about his apparently, which I'm I'm gonna watch. He's put up some kind of uh, thought piece 24 hours ago what he thinks the digital age will do to 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 markets and trends and all of that and i think that's interesting and of course a lot of these guys have called the price move of these cryptos correctly but i think that thinking about it in broader terms where it's not just related to price but what it will do in general is interesting and so i'm gonna sure get some inspiration from that but my point when i was listening to this was Wow, if really this digital age um, is going to take over, the only way I could think of that would be the absolute best way of participating in these markets must be a way where you don't predict because you have nothing to predict from. It is completely unpredictable what happens in the crypto world, and there are very few fundamentals at all. That led me to think that could only be trend-following. The absolute best way of trading these assets must be trend-following. So I'm hopeful that as many of these people have become millionaires or billionaires, getting it right initially, some by luck, some by great foresight, they should really focus on, if they want to use it as a trading, because it's becoming more and more validated, liquid. Now we have an exchange that's in the public eye. Well, if that's the case, and I'm certainly not denying that that is, then more people should get into using trend following as the basis for how they would want to trade these assets. What do you think, Jerry? I like it. Yes. I mean, you know what my answer is going to be. So it's just people are wondering sometimes. That's what people say on Twitter. Like, I know what Jerry's answer is, but I just don't know how he's going to explain it. (laughs) So I have the same answer all the time. So... Yeah, I think uh, you left out one thing, I believe, which is religion. I think a lot of what the reason people like Bitcoin or own Bitcoin is because it's almost a religious thing now. It's a philosophy of life. And uh, and so you've heard me say that it's the perfect uh, market to have in your portfolio because it's liquid, it's different, and you have no choice but to go with the trend unless you're in the religious camp because... I might be able to explain macroeconomics. I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, so I could talk about the dollar, gold, or silver, but no one knows what's going on with Bitcoin, honestly. And if it goes down, it's not going to impact any of the diehard bullish people about Bitcoin whatsoever. It's just not going to. It has to go to zero to get them to say, hey, it's just a market that goes up and down. And I've been in situations like this where I was so bullish on gold, let's say 2008, and or Soros was buying, and the world was coming to an end, and I was long gold, and it was making money, and then all of a sudden, gold starts going lower, and I'm like, oh no, this doesn't make sense, and even I got sucked in, I mean, I was still going to follow my system, but oh, the system was totally blowing, this is not uh, correct, and so we can get in those, where it becomes such our little friend. And we have we just so emotionally invested in it. But with Bitcoin, I just tell people I'm long. I've been long. But I have no idea where Bitcoin's going. I have no, I don't care about Bitcoin except as a trading vehicle. And if you ha- can have that attitude, you're going to be in very good shape knowing what to do in the future. 
Yeah, and I would just add to that, I completely agree. Religion in the sense that you're a diehard believer in, in crypto, actually I don't think it should prevent you from using trend following to trade your Bitcoin because the point is, if it's going to go up like we've just seen, well, you're going to be long, so it's going to be great. But if it was going to zero, even if you're very religious about it, you probably don't want to see all your assets disappear. So maybe it's not a bad thing to to get stopped out on occasion. You might not want to go short, fair enough. But anyways, let's not dwell too much on this because uh, we're already 39 minutes into our conversation. We only really tackled a couple of points. Now, there was another point you wanted to dive into a little bit before we get to the new question. But there was one more question from last week, which you had a comment to, and that one was from Jim. Jim writes, I'm new to the podcast in the la- in the past couple of months and enjoying the show. A lot of interesting threats have been explored. To focus on one, I recall listening to you describe using more than one trading system, which I understand to have signals based on a faster time period and a slower time period. A little trend-following method diversification. Then I thought, why not pair a trend-following system with something more uncorrelated? I started toying with the idea of pairing a trend-following system with a mean reversion system. Any thoughts on that? Have you tried employing something like that? Jerry, have you tried mean reversion? Uh, No, but I think it's worthwhile to go back and listen to what you and Moritz said about that. You guys had some good uh, comments and answers for that. I would just say that I don't think it's necessary, not from my point of view. I'm going to get back into a, my, one of my favorite topics, and that is I don't, want to, I don't see the need to smooth out my performance with a lot of very profitable open trades. It's just going to be bumpy, and we're trying to p- play for these outliers. And I think that's been my reawakening here recently is don't get bogged down with volatility and correlations. Your job really is to catch these outliers. And when it's a success when you own Tesla and soybeans and Bitcoin, irrespective of the volatility that your portfolio is experiencing, and take that freedom that classic trend following is offering. If you just take these small losses and preserve that capital, I will give you a free pass on the winning trades. Go for it. Be as volatile as you need to be and as you can handle on the open trade profits at the same time you're protecting these your capital with these 30 to 50 basis point losing trades, then let it go and don't concern yourself with volatility. And I, so I don't think tr- classic trend following needs help from especially as a systematics approach that is negative skew. And think about it. What is it going to do for Tesla and Bitcoin? Probably nothing more than reduce those positions. So you really want to reduce those positions? And Moritz brought up some really good points about how some of his mean reverting systems at, during periods of stress had similar correlation to the trend following. Right. Yeah, and and the other thing I just wanted to maybe mention, Jim, because I can't actually remember what I said last week, but I just wanted to say that I actually think maybe from a personality point of view, I think it would be quite hard. I think that at least when I think about it myself, you either or, you're not both. You either believe in these, that markets, you know, move and you're going to capture these large outliers, 
or you believe in, yeah, I can stay safe and st stick with some kind of uh, mean reversion system. So I don't know. I think from my personality point of view, I think it would be difficult to try and be both. And I think sometimes there's nothing wrong with standing firm on just being, this is what I am. I know it's not perfect. It's like life. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good and it's good enough. Anyways. If I could just yeah, say one more ahead. thing. So uh, my head of research at Chesapeake for 30 years, he and I looked at this idea of, and I was taught that add in ideas and systems and rules that may uh, not make money, but smooth out the performance. And so I was schooled on that from day one. But Mike and I would look at this and we would just say, gosh, we're not going to make as much money. <laughs> Do we really want to add something that's not very good when the trend following is so good? And I just think uh, it behooves you in so many different reasons to say, if it's an open trade profit, I'm not going to be so concerned about the volatility and the lumpiness as I am taking those small losses and limiting them. And I'm going to take that pass. But this is very old-fashioned trend following that is not really accepted very much these days. But that's where I am. Yeah, so let me, it's a good, it's a good segue to the next point, and I'm going to interject a little bit of statistics in it. It, it started out on Twitter. You send me the link. It's our friend, um, Meb Faber, who tweeted out something a couple of days ago where he says, as a poll, how much of your portfolio uh, do you allocate to trend following? And you could either choose zero, zero to 20%, 20 to 40%, and above 40%. Now, speaking about the point just before about combining trend following with, with something that doesn't correlate to trend following, right? There are, of course, the st statistics, and I can certainly vouch for this because if you, if we took our trend following program, so Don's trend following program back from 1984 when it started, and instead of doing it pure trend, but actually took 50% of that and put into just being long the S&P, Interestingly enough, even though the S&P has a slightly lower return over that 36-year period, the combined portfolio outperforms both, right? So people, and I think this is why I can imagine Jim says, well, why don't you just combine it with a mean reversion and you never lose money, you just make money. I mean, as you rightly said, it's not necessarily as easy as that. But if you look at some of these blended products like Eric Crittenden at Standpoint also argues for, maybe with some other arguments for why they want to do it. It's certainly easier for people to, to buy it than just buying the pure trend. But you can certainly see that there is some evidence that combining trend following with, say, a long equity portfolio could make sense. But anyways, the... Yeah, I'm going to get to your point. So, but anyways, the poll came out from, at least at this time when you send me this, the poll was... 43.6% said zero trend. Zero to 20% allocation to trend following, about 26% of people um, would choose that. Between 20 and 40% allocation, 9.8% of people. And more than a 40% allocation, 20%. Of course, you've replied 100% to CTA diversified trend following. Yes, I felt the need to say CTA diversified uh, because yeah. if it's stock only trend following... It's disappointing that 43.6% said zero, although it doesn't make me feel bad. It makes me feel, well, I'm smarter than 43.6% of the people for sure. 
George, our friend George, he had the yes, first he comment. He said, only 100%? <laughs> I love George. He whipped out at the end on this, though. He, he Very disappointing responses from George, but I'll get to that in a second. But I think and then my final question, my final comment was about all this, was how could you be more diversified? Mm. You won't even have currencies and commodities in your portfolio unless you use trend following. And remember, the only appropriate assets in a traditional long-only portfolio are markets that have gone up over time. So if it's not gone up over time, like the S&P, it's not even eligible. That's why real estate and gold tend to be the only things that uh, you can put in there because people don't want to consider trend following. And uh, which gets us, if you can consider trend following, then you can add the grains, the metals, the meats, the currencies. Uh, uh, what about shorts? I mean... We have all the markets possible, as much diversification as you could possibly have, long and short. And I see where it, George is coming from. I just wanted to get ahead of this assumption that it's all about the trend following. It's not a, all about the trend following. It's about all the markets. And then we put them in your portfolio in a safe way where we're not relying upon historical long-only returns, which commodities and currencies don't have positive returns shorts you can't put those in there either it's about the markets it's about getting all of that diversification in your portfolio how could you be more diversified i don't think the trend following as the category that we're talking about is that relevant it's more about how do you get those markets in there if you did a back test over all the data the there'd be no way that you would choose anything other than the fully diversified cta portfolio with trend following wrapped around it and with the short trades as well, as far as diversification goes. So I made that statement and George had no comment. Well, okay. People will disagree with you. Oh yeah, I know. People are going to disagree with me, but I don't see where we're wrong about that. And you could say, well, diversification is not everything. I agree. You've got to have some profits and we've not made as much money in the CTA diversified trading over the past 10 years as the stock market. That's true. That was not the question, but prior to 2009, CTA diversified trend following made more money than the stock market and obviously had more less risk and more diversification. And another thing, just to finish up, as we talked about last year, uh, the three of us, or maybe 2019 even, we were noting uh, that the world stock markets, a lot of them are falling off the list of markets that have gone up over time. So we, at one point we were speculating, will it only be the US that we can continue to say has gone up over time? And I think it's just difficult for hard-nosed, hardcore trend followers to look at any market and say, aha, this 100 years of the stock market going up over time is something that we want to rely upon. And we, we're just like, well, I'm not sure if I really want to rely upon that. We could all do it. We're free to do it. Done in Chesapeake. And every CTA could have this allocation to the long S&P all the time, like uh, some people are doing now, which I consider to be more of a marketing thing. But where is this belief from, I think it's uh, people outside of the CTA industry, maybe they're, it's easier for them to really believe in this equity premium and to make equities a core, a long only equities a core. But CTA trend followers have a difficult time doing that. Yeah, I mean, my financial history is not as good as it should be, but I seem to remember having heard 
that if you go back in time and you look at equity returns, and of course you have to put things together to get a really long-term time frame, but if you go back to the South Sea bubble, when that burst, I think I've heard that actually, and people can fact check this, of course, that actually the UK equity market went into a bear market of some sort, or at least not made new highs for 68 years. That's a pretty long time not to make new highs. So I, con- I, I agree with your concern, and I agree with just because we in our maybe investment career have seen interest rates go down pretty much only doesn't mean that it's not going to change and they could go up for the next 40 years. For, for that I know, they they stopped going down last year, which is actually also an interesting point in some of the research that's coming up right now. And has the interest rate cycle changed? And what does that mean for people? What does it mean for their portfolios? Because most portfolios have been built for deflationary periods and times. And this is why the 60-40 portfolio has worked so well, because on top of those... On top of getting equity-like returns from your bonds, they've been the perfect companion because they've been negatively correlated to your stocks. But that's not how they're correlated in the very long term. Lots of good point. I'm sure we'll dig into that, all of that um, as we move forward. But now we do need to get to the questions that came in this week. First one is from Danny. Danny writes, your podcast and trading material are second to none on systematic trading. Every week I go through archives and there are always plenty of interesting information that I find and I'm constantly using your materials to make myself smarter. Thanks for that, Danny. A question I had that maybe is unanswerable But here it goes. I run a trend-following system for a few investors, but I do it through ETFs across currencies, sectors, uh, currencies, and then sectors like fixed income, agricultural, crypto, equities, and international markets. I run my system at 2x leverage. Here's the question. When I'm fully invested and I get another signal for a new entry right now, I exit out of a name that exhibits less volatility than the new signal. In your experience, are there other ways to add new positions once you are fully invested? And that goes back to some of the things we talked about earlier, Jerry. But of course, it is an issue for people who don't use futures like we do, where you only have a finite amount of cash you can invest in these ETFs. So so it won't be an answer I'm sure you're going to give based on what, what you do. But do you have any ideas of what he could do if he has that constraint? Well, I think he should try to get as close to what we do is possible, and that is take all the trades. So maybe right. run it at 1x, mm-hmm. but and then as he gets more and more signals, he does have uh, the 2x possibility from leverage. And I think you can get more than 2 to 1 leverage in stocks, so I do. And so I think that whatever you can do to your trading size and your leverage to, in order to take those small losses where you're exiting positions and freeing up capital to take new trendy positions or maybe or maybe limit the number of ETFs that he's trading. But I think the bottom line is do whatever you can do so you can take all the trades in your portfolio. You have a fixed portfolio. How many do you have? That's a question, a variable. And then you want to take all of those trades, figure out a way 
to not bypass trades. And I don't like the idea of exiting based upon another market. You exit based upon your rules, breakout, moving average rules, not, oh, I'm going to switch out of this and go into something else. That's no good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you that maybe the way around this, and I'm not, don't know if it's possible, but it is to say, okay, I'm going to trade smaller. So I might use a 2x or 3x ETF, but I'm going to size it small enough so that if I get a lot of signals, I can actually take them all. And I'm sure, I'm sure, Danny, you could test that. You obviously know how many signals you could get at any one time based on the markets you trade. So maybe that is an option. And maybe it means that your returns are going to be different. But if they're still in your backtest good enough, and, and they should probably risk-adjusted at least be better um, because you're getting more diversification, then maybe that is a way forward. But of course, the, the way to solve it and the way we solve it is we trade futures where we only use about 20% or 25% of the cash and so that we are able to take all of the positions. But, you know, at times, a fully uh, diversified trend-following system with uh, a decent amount of, of risk, let's call it 20-25% annualized volatility, when you look at the notional level of, of contracts we trade um, at any one time, we can get to 10x, 12x, because it depends on what kind of contracts they are. If they're short-term interest rates, notionally speaking, they take up a lot of space. So, so, so that's why it's difficult for us to sometimes compare with the notional leverage we run and what leverage you might run. So you have to be careful and not you know, translating what we say directly into saying, oh, well, Jerry and Neil said I can go 4x. Well, you may not be able to go 4x. So just uh, just be aware of that, Danny. The uh, leverage ETFs are a good move. I think there's a lot of literature out there where the leveraged ETFs, yeah, I think you have to be careful. They don't yeah. work the way you think they will. So I yeah. couldn't use those, but some, some brokerage firms give futures like leverage. And also, there are some more and more of these micro contracts, right? There's even a micro Bitcoin contract now, I think. So maybe, Danny, it's worth looking into just see what markets can I trade on a micro level. And yeah, anyways, last question from this week uh, is from Matthew. Matthew writes, love the show. The podcast has really helped me understand trend following. And I definitely, and it is definitely a system that works for me personally. When you talk about longer time frames, how do you calculate that? Longer entry breakout, 65 or 100 days versus 55 days, or longer stop loss, 50 days versus 20 days, or uh, ATRs, three versus two. So, Jerry, when we when you talk about longer time frames, how would you how do you define that? Just the way he said it. In the early days, I traded twenty day breakouts. Now I wouldn't do anything shorter term than hundred day breakouts. The markets have gotten more choppy, and I think the hundred day always was better than the twenty day. <laughs> so I think there were some personality choices in there. The desire to not and the leverage. I used to trade with huge leverage, and so if you feel a little safer. But the cost is do the back test, and it's pretty easy to see that if you're going to exit on the 20-day low, you're going to have to get back in more frequently than the 100-day low. Reset the trade, reset the ATR position sizing. That's why the 100-day AT a look back for the exit, let's say, is going to look better. The computer is just going to say, hey, you're going to hang into these long-term trends more, make more money. But you're going to give back more. So if your bottom line is, oh my gosh, I can't handle this volatility and this 
give back of these huge trades, even though I'll make more money, then you know, you're going to be stuck trying to find uh, something that suits your personality versus something that makes the most amount of money. Yeah, and to validate that point, actually, on our side, we uh, internally look at just a classical trend following model there. And then we look at what are the best time, what's the best time frame been all the way back to 1990s or ever around 30 years now of data, just simulating what would the absolute perfect time frame have been. And there are very few years, really, probably a handful where you would say that the short term had done better. And actually, one of the years where the short term have done better, and this will be surprising to most people, that was 2008. But it didn't mean that all the other timeframes didn't work as well. They did. So even in a 2008 where, yes, you would, if you had to pick the best one, and I'm just you know guessing now, let's say it was a 30-day breakout, that would have marginally made a little bit more money in 2008. All the other timeframes, including 100 days, 200 days, 150 days, they all made money as well. So overall, I would say it's a safe bet to say that longer term timeframes, at least historically, have been the most profitable ones. And this is also why I sometimes, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Jerry, this is also why I sometimes get a little bit passionate when I hear people say, yeah, short-term trading has taken over. It's going to just look at February 2018 or February 2020. This is, this is The markets have changed from now on. Only short-term trend following works. Pisses me off, frankly, a little bit because it's based on a very short period of time when you make that conclusion. Look at the long-term data and then see the results. Then we have a fair comparison. Oh, so true. I've had that said to me over the years, over 37 years. It's the same thing over and over. It's, and then you could also muddy the waters if they mention uh, sharp or something like that. <clears throat> so, right. but yeah, it's, it's disappointing that, and now I have a friend on Twitter who is pretty not in love to say the least with trend following. And so he brought up a good point that we should discuss or maybe discuss at another time that is has long-term trend following become buy and hold like uh you guys are not offering very much value it's you're cheating now that your uh, turtle trading doesn't work any longer with those shorter term parameters okay so all you're doing now all you're offering to the world now is this thing that to me it looks like buy and hold and it's not that cool or great and there's no alpha you're not really doing very much anymore. So trend following is dead. And uh, so I think, is long-term trend following like buy and hold? And is that a negative thing? And once again, I was just thinking of how I could come back uh, to that. Not that it's going to change anybody's mind, but it would be that if you look at all the data, I was shocked because we switched in the late 90s to a longer-term holding period. And I was just shocked that while I was trading a shorter-term system, the longer term was better. It was always better. It's not this recent thing. I used to say, well, the markets are choppier. There's more trend following. There's more computers. Yeah, true. But long term in this, and that's another problem that what is long term to Jerry may not be long term to Niels. It may be uh, medium term, or I think uh, some CTAs don't want to say long term. They say medium term, but who knows? We're probably trading similar look back periods. But I think to your Twitter friend, I mean, I think some of the things that I would go back with and say, well, hang on, first of all, trend following is not just about time frame, right? Trend following is a lot more. And one of the things, and, and I think we all say that when we're asked, I mean, 
we have no control over the returns anyway. So what we spend most of our time is really managing the risk. And so I think when you think about has trend following become just buy and hold, I really don't think so. Through certain periods of time, especially maybe when central banks are strong and they manage the economy well, then certain markets in the portfolio will look like it's long only buy and hold for sure. But there are a lot, but there are a lot more components in that. And then when you get the next regime change, which again, it could have already started, then that's where the portfolio gets more active. We can't help the fact that usually when trends are good, our trading activity is low. That's just the way it is. But then trading activity picks up when things get difficult. And, and that's where the risk management kicks in as well. And if we get into a trend like these mega moves we're seeing, soybeans, Tesla, Bitcoin, etc., and our exit is 100 days lower, the back test says this is the optimal exit. It's a great exit. You're going to make so much money. And then it's working and we don't get out of those trades. Are we going to step aside and say, oh, uh, no, I I'm not going to be able to do that. I've got all this evidence ahead of me, but I just feel like it's buy and hold. I mean, what? Why would we say that? I mean, I'm just thankful it never hit the 100-day low. I'm in. I'm making hundreds of ATR on this trade, but I'm going to wake up and say, what reminds me of buy and hold, so that's no good. Choose something else. I should have gotten out of Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't get it. We've seen periods where the medium and long-term trend following did really well and that was uh, last year in the February-March area where we got out of the longs, we got into the shorts, we were making tons of money, we were crazily diversified, not suffering like a long-only stock portfolio. Wow. And so it worked out pretty darn well. And I don't really see where we don't deserve credit for that strategy doesn't deserve some credit versus uh, criticism. Yeah. No, absolutely. All right, let me quickly run through a couple of performance numbers so far so we can see um, how our wonderful industry is coping. Beta 50 index up 1.16% for the month of April so far, up 3.86% for the year. SockGen CT index up 1.42% for the month, up 3.98% for the year. SockGen trend index up 0.6% so far. This is as of Thursday, of course, so I think Friday was a pretty okay day. Nothing special, up 4.6% for the year. And the short-term traders index up a quarter percent this month, up uh, two and a quarter and thereabouts uh, so far this year. As I mentioned, my trend barometer is a bit weak at the moment, but still people seem to be able to find some profit opportunities even during this month of April. Any final thoughts? We talked about Rob's interview, which of course we can't recommend to anyone because they get he gets too, what do you say, um, High on his horse. Oh, God. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, he's fun. He's, he's always, yeah, exactly. He's always fun. Always learn something from listening to Rob. And he'll be back in a week. Just for a second or two, if you wanted to uh, give me an insight into mm -hmm. why the, your trend indicator is not really strong, because I was painting this picture yeah. earlier that all the trends are looking pretty good to me. How does you, the trend indicator not confirm that from an internal point of view, just a nugget of how that kind of works? Yeah, so so right now, if I look at the website that I updated this morning, the only sector right now as a whole sector that it has as a trending sector is equities, right? So, so the, all the other sectors, and I don't can't I don't know exactly why, but I mean, I'm, 
the other sectors right now are not showing up. If I look at single markets, and and then again, you can. So I'll give you what markets it's saying is in a trend, and you can you can tell me what where it's wrong, or maybe it's not. So it has the DAX, it has the Nasdaq, it has the SMI, it has the SPY. So those are the markets that it's right now saying they're in a trend. It does not say that the Nikkei is in a strong or medium trend. It does not say that other stocks, you know, have no other stocks in the portfolio. So those are the markets that it's right now saying those are. And I think probably would agree if we look at a chart. Yeah, that's fair enough, probably, that those are the stronger of the markets. When we look at um, fixed income, it doesn't have that many fixed income markets. But right now, all of the fixed income markets are not in a strong trend. And we, I think that intuitively is correct because we know bonds sold off, but then they're backed up in the last couple of weeks. So maybe it's picking up that the trend is taking a break. It's not saying that it's in an uptrend. It's just saying it's not in a bear trend right now. Now, in terms of the currencies, none of the currencies is showing up as a strong trend or medium trend right now. And maybe that's also fair because we know there's been some corrections to that. The markets that it has in a trending state, if we go to base metals, is the aluminum. It's also copper. But zinc and lead is currently not in a strong trend. Now, I, I don't have the markets charts in my head right now, but just I'll show you better than I do. Now, in terms of the grains that it has classified as in a medium to strong trend is bean oil, corn, and soybeans, but not wheat, for example. So again, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's how it, it measures the strength. And then when we go, and then of course, uh, lean hogs and uh, live cattle, it's not in a trend. I think they sold off, so that's probably what it's picking up. And then the softs, none of the softs except for sugar, it has classified as a strong trend. So when you look of, of, of the portfolio, it's 11 markets out of the 44, and that's why the trend barometer shows 25, which is weak. But it doesn't mean that a lot of the other markets have gone strongly in the other direction, and you would say it's a difficult trend-following environment. It just doesn't register it as being in a consistent, strong trend. How does that sound? Does that make sense at all when you look at the market? It just makes me think yeah. that it's short-term. Right. Because a lot of the markets that are not in positive uptrends, for instance, it would take mm -hmm. a day to get there, to make new highs. And yeah. so that, and, and it begs the question, maybe we don't have enough time, but what, what was the goal in creating this and how was it put together and back-tested if it was? Because in some respects, like until I hit the 100-day low in the lead, it's in an uptrend, right? The computer is saying, right. do not get out before the 100-day low. You will make more money if you don't get out and hold on versus the 20-day low. And so, so by definition, it's still a great long, although I can see how lead doesn't show. Now that I understand a little bit more, it's a little shorter term than that, but it's not optimized for making money. So, yeah. No. Exactly. So, okay. So, this is a great question. It's fun to to talk about this. Now we're going back to memory lane because the trend barometer came to existence many years ago, around two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight. And I think one of the ideas behind it was to visualize 
how do you classify a good environment for trend following and a bad environment for trend following? Because we went through a period of time where performance, again, was lackluster, but people didn't quite understand why that was. So the trend barometer, and, and actually it's mostly relevant on the last trading day of the month. That's what I call, that's what I use to correlate back to the BTOP50 performance. So when I go back and I take all the observations at the end of the month since 1990 and i correlate and i look at, and so and i look at each calendar year and this is a little bit from memory i don't have the numbers exactly in my head but what you find is that during the so 1990 to now let's just call it 30 years right i think the btop 50 index from memory have had something like 9 negative years, eight or nine negative years in that 30-year period. And eight of the nine has come since QE got introduced, which is quite interesting, right? So it clearly demonstrates that QE has had an effect on trends in some way, shape, or form. And what's really interesting to me is that when I look at those down years, there seem to be those seems to be years where the trend barometer registered at month end a, a reading below i think it's below 40 in more than 6 or 7 months of the year there's some correlation you can do that so so actually so it's not, you're absolutely right it's not designed to make money and you're absolutely also right in the observation which of course you would guess it's not a long term observation window this can f- change relatively quickly. In a few days from now, we could be at 60 if a lot of markets certainly turn. So no, but it is an attempt to visualize the environment for trend following. And actually the correlation when you look at what is the reading at the end of the month, you can have a pretty good idea whether it was a neutral month for trend followers, say plus minus 2%, no clear direction, if it was a really bad month for trend followers or whether it was a really good month. And and actually, to, to tell you a little bit of a secret, back then, because a lot of managers were struggling with this question, some of the biggest managers in the world came to us back then and asked if they could use this data. We didn't give them the formulas, but they got the data so that they could go and visualize this to their own clients to say, yeah, this is why trend following hasn't worked so well. And so it's still consistent in doing that. So I'm not surprised it doesn't always pick up right now that maybe the trends are are maybe a little bit better for us as managers than they show up as the trend barometer. Another thing, of course, is it's 44 markets and you trade 100 markets and it doesn't have crypto. It doesn't have... So it's also a little bit of a legacy setup and and it's just not changed since then. So, yeah, but good to go that back memory lane. Other than that, Jerry, anything else you want to share before we wrap up our conversation today? I don't think so. Great time to, uh, chatting with you today and, and answering the questions. And let's keep those good questions coming. They're really thought-provoking and we miss... Sometimes I don't remember what people need to hear. And so really happy about that and ask for clarifications as well. I can get going and confusing. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And we certainly appreciate also all the time that people put into listening to the podcast, but also going back in the archives, picking out some of these uh, points that we make. And then feel free to always ask through the email info at toptradersonplug.com for any clarification. As we say, we do this because we want you to grow and learn and stay with your systematic approach to the markets, hopefully trend following as well. Of course, we also hope that if you do enjoy the content that you would go to iTunes and leave a rating and review because it really does help more people get into our world. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. And so make sure you do keep your questions coming. He always has some other ways of looking at things, other topics. So look forward to that while we build up to the next episode where we will have Jerry and Rob back together. I'm sure it'll be something we can do later in Q2. From Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 